we have a great subscription offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our digital edition for 12 months for just $24.99. That's six issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your inbox for less than $4.20 an issue. Only $24.99 for a full year. So don't wait. To subscribe, go to australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. Hi, I'm Ben Kantak and you're listening to Talking Australia, the podcast by Australian Geographic. Our guest today is David Malin, also known as the man who coloured the stars. Born in the north of England, David joined the Australian Observatory in 1976. Using his deep knowledge in electronic microscopy, David achieved what hadn't been done before, to capture the true colours of our night sky regarded as one of the leading experts in the field of astrophotography, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome him to Talking Australia. David, your background lies in chemistry originally, and uh, I find that fascinating considering what career you ended up in. And um, I want to get into how you ended up there, obviously, but talking about photography... What sparked your interest in photography in the first place? My interest in photography was sparked by a girlfriend. <laughs> I met um, a French girl. I fell over a French girl in the ice rink in Manchester uh, in 1957. I remember it clearly. And I picked her up. Uh, you know, she was not a very good skater, and neither was I. But I picked her up and we got chatting. She was French. She was au pair in England. And when we got to know each other better, she said, well, you need to come and spend some time with my family in Paris. Uh, and I went to Paris and I was blown away with Paris. Paris is a beautiful, beautiful city and Manchester isn't. Uh, and I regretted not having a camera. So uh, I took a camera for ev thereafter and became a photographer. Uh, I, I loved the way in which you could capture an instant or a scene and then translate it in the darkroom, in wet chemicals in those days, to, to make it say something that, that reminded me of that scene and that, that time. And that was my beginning of life in photography, because I worked at that time for a chemical company, Seba Geigy, uh, just north of Manchester. They were a large Swiss chemical outfit. They invented DDT. I, was, I worked with DDT for many years with them, and then my chemistry changed to other, other things because DDT became on the nose. Um, yeah. uh, Rachel Carson killed DDT, probably with some justification. Uh, so I changed careers within that company. But all, all the way through, I had photography at my fingertips and I was, I was therefore assigned to do, take pictures through microscopes. And eventually we bought an electron microscope and we eventually bought other fancy equipment. And I, then I ran this department for quite a long time. So my photography began in Paris, but it gave me a career. I was just about to say that is probably my mistake because I'm, you know, I'm a different generation. But of course, thinking of photography, there's 
there used to be so much knowledge involved, like in chemistry, to yes. develop these photos. So there, I mean, that is a perfect connection there. Yes. You know, obviously now it's all digital and... I still remember having proper film uh, in cameras, but yes, back then it was um, you really needed to know what you're doing there. Yes, it was skillful. Uh, obtaining the data, I always think of photography photographs as data. Obtaining the data was on film, and that wasn't very flexible in the technical sense. Uh, you, you either took a photograph and got it right the exposure first time, or you didn't. Uh, so that was a bit of an art form as well. Um, but Processing the material and extracting uh, a positive image from it, colour or, or black and white, was a bit of an art form. Uh, and it, it demanded some technical skills that aren't, aren't common nowadays. Uh, and I enjoyed that process. The idea of clicking a shutter, capturing some photons on a piece of film, and then extracting from it something that might, might even stir your emotions or at least record some scene that you enjoyed or a moment that you enjoyed. That, to me, was, was magic. Um, and once I was once found working in the darkroom uh, over lunchtime at Sibagagi when I should have been doing something else, and I got, I got uh, spoken to about it. But then they said, well, look, if you're, if you're interested in this, we, we, we will buy a microscope and you can use that, and we can photograph some of the crystals and uh, fibres and stuff that we're working with in, in the labs. And that developed into a, a whole department. So basically someone picked up on that passion that was growing yes. within that you was, that for was photography. That was very much a European company. Uh, perhaps a British company would have fired me for taking time off over lunchtime to make my photographs. But they said, no, uh, clearly this lad's got some, some talent. Uh, we'll use it. And they did. And it, it made my career. I find that fascinating that that's how it starts and someone gives you a shot and, and just goes, you know what, we just run with this. Clearly, there's someone who's fascinated and is very, very passionate about that, that field, which is a little bit different to your job being an assistant at that point. Yes, it was right? just a laboratory system. You ended up being, becoming the head of the electron microscopy yes. um, department, so yes. to say. How did that happen? Cause, I well, mean, the, the company grew uh, and its range of products grew. Uh, and the people realise that having a, a, a microscopic view of... Well, let me start, start again. Uh, the company was involved in surfaces, fundamentally. It, it coated the surfaces of fibres. It used to make pigments that make paints that coat surfaces. It made things that stop metal going rusty. It was all surface chemistry. Okay. And that surface, that interface between the, the wood, the paint, whatever, and the coating was inaccessible once the coating was on. But with a microscope, you can dig in there and see what's happening at that surface. It was as fundamental as that. Um, and I made a career out of it. it that, that, that notion, it wasn't my idea, but the fact that we could do it using special equipment, it wasn't chemistry equipment, it was physics equipment, uh, made all the difference. And so the, the, the department slowly grew. I had four people or so working for me for a while. And uh, we had an electron microscope, a scanning electron microscope, which was a very new thing in those days, in the 1960s. Um, and other uh, uh, X-ray diffraction apparatus to put probe around inside molecules and crystals. All of that, and all of it, all the recording medium in that time was photography. But that became almost incidental. It was the techniques themselves that were revealing new information that were very useful for a, an outgoing uh, modern chemical company. We, this unit was the first in, in England, I think, at that time. State-of-the-art equipment you were working with. Yes. 
Yes. How, because you were with the company for quite a few years, obviously, how did you end up in Australia in 1975? You, you moved yeah, from Yeah, I UK came to Australia in 1975. Yeah. I joined Sibagagi in 1957, mm. so I was there for quite a while. Um, I met an Australian, <laughs> to answer your question. Uh, she was um, uh, a girlfriend. Uh, a girlfriend of, of mine went to live in southern England. I was yeah. in Manchester. Yeah. And she, she became an air hostess because she wanted to travel. And she was in, in accommodation with another girl who was Australian who also wanted to travel. Uh, we weren't, weren't uh, intimate friends in any way, but we were just good mates. And so she wrote to me or rang me and said, There's a, look, I've got an Australian girl living with me and she's lived in London and she's lived in Crawley for a few months. She hasn't seen any of England, but she wants to go back to Australia. Why don't you come round and we'll show her southern England? We'll go to Cornwall or something like that and drive around the south. Beautiful. Fantastic. So we did. And I set off in my Mini Cooper from, uh, from Manchester and drove down to uh, Crawley. And met this lady. She was charming and sweet. She's now my wife. Um, and we cruised southern England with uh, uh, my friend Carol, her boyfriend, her dog, a flatulent dog, all in this little car uh, for 10 days or so. <laughs> I bet you become very close. We, it was intimate, yes, <laughs> it, was inti it was intimate right in the beginning. But anyway, by the end of this trip, Philippa and I had fallen for each other, and that changed my life completely. Mm. Philippa, uh, when we got married, didn't want to go back to Australia. She was really enjoying uh, the English life and the countryside. Uh, and we bought a couple of houses eventually, a small cottage to begin with, a tumble-down place. We restored it. There's a story in all of that too. And uh, then we bought a cottage in the country in Cheshire. Uh, that's where our kids were born. We have three children. Um, and then um, uh, I don't quite know how it is that we got... Oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. There was a job advert in the... Uh, no, let me go back a few stages. I was doing well at Sibagagi, running this small department... And I thought, well, I should, have be, should be head of lab now, uh, which meant a bigger carpet and a bigger desk and, you know, the usual things. Um, so I went to see a director of research, whose name I recall but won't utter here. <laughs> and he was a Scot. He was a Glaswegian Scot. And I said to him, Jimmy, um, you know, I, I'm doing this stuff, make, doing some publications, which was unusual in, chemical, in a con uh, commercial company in those days. There were publications and writing and this sort of thing. Uh, and I said, it's about time I became head of lab. I don't think I used those words exactly, but that's what I was implying. And he looked at me and he said, laddie, in his Scottish accent, laddie. I was 34, right? Laddie, you're never going to get to be head of lab here. I said, you're not a P you don't have a PhD. And that was true. I didn't have a PhD. I had all the skills. Yeah. I was yeah. managing these people, but I didn't have a PhD, so I didn't get my bigger carpet and bigger desk. And that shook me because I'd been with the company then for 18 years, climbing up slowly, 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 and I never realised that there was a, a ceiling uh, that I was going to bump into against. But with hindsight, I remember a couple of years before I had this conversation yeah. with the director of research, McKinsey came through the company and reorganised reorganized it, and it must have been that that uh, forced, obliged them to have a, 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 a defined management structure that involved a PhD for head of lab. Because many of my other colleagues who were heads of lab, had been there a while, they weren't PhDs, they were appointed before. 
So I was, I was frustrated, annoyed and shocked by all, by all of this because Sibagagi was a lovely company to work I, for I bet. in and, every other uh, respect. And you were invested in it. I was invested in it, absolutely. Uh, I'd have spent the rest of my life there because the work was so interesting, so productive, so enjoyable in many ways. So I started looking around for other jobs. Uh, and I couldn't find anything like Sibagagi, like my, like, like my position in Sibagagi at that time. Uh, and eventually one day I opened the pages of Nature. I've got a copy here, actually. The famous science magazine. Thumbing through the back, and I noticed the, uh, a, block, a block advertisement. It's an Anglo-Australian observatory looking for te technical people. Uh, it had a f about four or five jobs listed. And, but one of them was a specialist, uh, specialist photographer uh, used to working in a scientific environment. And I thought, hmm, that sounds very interesting. So I applied. Now, the observatory wasn't up and running then, so, and the director had just been appointed, so it was a long, long time before I heard anything. So I, I then wrote back and gave me some idea of my qualifications and interests. Another long lapse of time, didn't hear anything else, so I thought, well, that's fallen through. That's obviously yeah, not interested yeah. in me. And then I got a, uh, a telex, as you did in those days, long before emails, um, and it said, uh, Professor Wampler, director of the observatory, will be in uh, Cheshire at Jodrell Bank, the radio telescope at Jodrell Bank, um, in such and such a date, and he would like to see you. Wow. So I got dressed up in my best hat and drawers, bowler hat and umbrella, you know, the usual British way that you had to do in those days. Rocked up at this small hotel in Wilmslow in the south of England, and I said, could I see Professor Wampler, please? And they looked at me a bit strangely. Oh, you must mean Joe. So I said, yes, Joseph Wampler. Uh, he said, look, he's, he's down there. Just go down those stairs. He's, uh, he'll, he'll be there. And so I went down the stairs in the cellar where the washing machines were, and here was Joe watching his clothes go around in a washing machine in a bright uh, uh, cherry-ripe shirt, um, young fellow, younger than me, um, and he said, hi, you must be Dave. <laughs> and he had a Californian accent. He was an American. And we got on very well from there uh, because, you know, I was, I was nervous about this, of course, because it, bet, it could I be career-changing. Yeah. But Joe put me at ease straight away. We had a long chat about what, what I could do, what he wanted to have done at the observatory. And it was, became fairly clear that I could help a lot in many, many ways. Yeah. And so I said, look, I'm, I'm interested in the job, Joe. He said, well, look, I've got three or four more people to see while I'm in Britain and some more people from Germany, etc. It'll be a while. And it was a while. But then I was invited for the job, which, of course, meant leaving for Australia. My wife didn't play any part in this, by the way, because she, although she's an Australian, she was loving living in England. She was thoroughly enjoying the... Like a lot of Australians do. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's entirely different. The countryside is soft and gentle. There are no snakes or anything like that, no spiders. Anyway, she didn't, she, she didn't object to going home at all, but it wasn't in, the, wasn't in the life plan. So off we came to Australia and to join the observatory, and um, it, was my, it was a perfect place for me. I was surrounded by academics, all of whom were young PhDs, usually on their first kind of appointment, being run in, as it were. They were very keen to make themselves uh, noticed. Um, I was the conduit for many of the ways that data were recorded in those, photography, uh, light, light detection in ways that aren't, aren't electronic. Um, and so I collaborated with many of those. Within a year, I was involved in writing a book with two of my my uh, astronomy colleagues, 
I published a, a, a paper on a, a discovery I made in a galaxy because I developed some new photographic techniques in the observatory, which are ideal for extracting faint features from from uh, uh, astronomy images that had never been done before. So that led to some new discoveries. So I was writing my own papers, again, in Nature occasionally. And that made my career. Uh, and then I invented a way of making three color pictures uh, using black and white plates. Uh, it, I didn't invent it, it was invented in 1883. I was, just, I was just about to say, because I want to butt in there, because just to put it into perspective for everyone listening, because yes. obviously I know this about yeah. you, um, and, and people can find out about that. But just going back to that to that bit about you you leaving them for Australia, and this job basically fell into your, your lap, you could say, well, like in hindsight. I mean, you were, the, you were perfect for it. You were the perfect fit for it. And sometimes these things are just meant to happen, and that sounds very much... So in this case, um, I mean, David, you're known as the man who colored the stars to many. Hmm. Um, nowadays, we all seen fascinating, vivid images of stars and galaxies. You can just go online and, you know, bring up a number of yes. websites and yes. you have all these amazing pictures and images and all these colors are captured in them. That was obviously not always the case. Um, what led to the first color pictures and why was it so difficult to achieve it? Color film as was, was not made for long exposures. Um, and because astronomical, astronomical objects, even with a very large telescope, are extremely faint, the exposures tend to be very, very long. And all kinds of strange things happen within a film if the exposure is long, especially if it's a colour film, for example. The blue sensitive layer in the colour film uh, might, might have a much better response to long exposure than the red for example. And so when you produce the photograph, it was distorted in colour. It's much bluer than it was red after a long exposure. So colour films weren't really suitable for long exposures and very few good astronomy colour pictures were made using colour film. But I knew that uh, photography was invented, invented colour photography was invented a long time ago and the first colour photographs were made from taking plates in blue light, red light and green light, three separate plates. Splitting it up. Splitting it up, scheme, yeah. yeah. And then combining it together, using making positive copies of those plates, projecting them through three magic lanterns, projectors onto a screen, in register, and the colours suddenly reappeared. That was James Clark Maxwell's invention, a marvellous scientist. So that idea was always in my head, that's how, that's how colour is, when it, you yeah. divide it into red, green and blue yeah. and reconstitute an image from it. Well, this was perfect because uh, to photograph the sky, astronomers want blue plates and they want red plates to, to, uh, to work out the colours of the stars, literally work out the colours of the stars. So there were quite a few of those blue and red pairs in our photographic library. All I had to do was to go and take a green pair, a green plate, which matched those, three, those other two, and I could make a colour picture in the manner of James Clark Maxwell. Wow. And that worked. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> so this is another example of um, you know uh, of cases where the technology is there, but it's just a matter of how to use it and how to access it. And yeah, how well, James Clark Maxwell was fairly obscure. I mean, he, he, a very brilliant scientist, but that kind of uh, detail of his life was not forgotten exactly. But and it's known in physics books, uh, but not not many photographers would be aware of it. But I was, and it it led me to making him uh, these uh, wonderful color pictures. Uh, which were a revolution in their day. I find that as someone who's not familiar with all the 
um, technical you know background that goes into making photos and how they you know um, I find it very helpful to picture it like that that it's not that the color was missing it's more about extracting it yeah. is that correct yes the color, the color information is there it's all there you just have to the, extract it extract in the it, right balance. extract it and combine it and combine it yeah. yes now if you've got a digital everybody's got a digital camera everybody's got a phone yeah so the, the digital digital camera in there, and in the back of that phone, there's a sensor that's got red, green, and blue pixels in it. So you're still making photographs in this red, blue, green way. If you were to take a, a detailed uh, a, a detailed look at a, a digital photograph, if you magnify it big enough, the pixels are there: red, green, and blue, and they all make color pictures. We have a special offer for all our listeners. Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $39.99 and save 10% on the newsstand price. That's three issues of our award-winning magazine delivered to your home for just $39.99. You'll find our special subscription offer at australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. That's australiangeographic.com.au forward slash Talking Australia. There's an amazing image of you from 1976 um, where you sit in an open steel capsule. That's <laughs> the best way to describe it. Yes. Um, you would spend hours in there yes. um, creating these amazing images. What was it like being in there and what was the process like? Um, I mean, you must have had yoga lessons or something to sit in this <laughs> tiny capsule. Um, well, you, what you're talking about is the prime focus uh, cage, as it was called. Okay, which yeah. is the it looks top, like a capsule. That's it's right, a yeah. capsule, yeah. yes. Uh, which is at the top of the Anglo-Australian telescope. Yeah. Uh, uh, 12 metres below me was a mirror, four, four metres into that diameter. And that mirror is reflecting light into that capsule, into a, to a focus in a rectangular box. And on top of that box, you'd put a photographic plate. That's where the light arrived from the stars. So basically a gigantic camera and you're, you're sitting inside, right in the middle of it. You're inside the camera. You're inside the camera. <laughs> Uh, and it's a novel place to be because uh, you're alone there, of course, and you're very high up in the dome during the night. The telescope swings around uh, across the sky from side to side looking for objects, focusing on objects. Uh, and you have to sit there quite still because if you move around vigorously, uh, the telescope will wobble and the picture will be blurred. So you have to sit there for quite a long time, sometimes 90 minutes at a time, waiting for a very long exposure. Uh, you get used to it. Uh, you have to make certain toilet arrangements, of course, but uh, you, you get quite used to it. You have, and ideally, you, uh, you work with two people. And, and in, in the latter part I did, I worked with a, a great friend, Steve Lee, who's still at Siding Spring now. Um, um, you divide the night into two, or into shifts, basically. You do four hours apiece. And then you go, and photogra- you go and process the plates that you'd taken while Steve was up there doing all the other stuff. Uh, and then I would swap over a couple of times during the night. So the plates were processed during the night as well. Otherwise, you'd end a long night and you were faced with processing 12 plates, which would take several hours before you could go to bed. And in the wintertime, that's a really serious chore because you're observing for 12 hours or so, you're processing for another six and going to bed and then immediately starting work again at the, on the telescope. So if you do it two or three nights in a row in the winter, it's a chore. It's, it's very challenging. I bet it is. But, what, what's the processing process like with those plates? Is it They're all done individually in a tray rocker. They wear, you have a rectangular tray on a gimbal driven by a motor, and it sloshes about with a liquid in it in a special way so it's absolutely even. Uh, that's the developer. You take the plate out of the developer, 
uh, rinse it under some water, put it back in the tray, put some fixer in so the image is fixed, and then you can turn the light on for the first time and see what's going on. Um, and then you wash the plates for about 30 minutes in, in running water. Uh, but each plate was individually processed, and that took time. How did um, technological advancements change astrophotography in the last decades? It's completely revolutionized. It's quite done, done in quite a different way now. Uh, first of all, the detectors, and uh, the photographic plate was a detector. It detected and recorded light. But the, the detectors now are electronic. They're not unrelated to the ones you have in your, in your own cameras today. But they're not color. They were always black and white. Because it's, but it's, it's a much more efficient way to capture uh, red, green, and blue light, for instance, if you have a sensor that's sensitive to just that, just, just three lights, and you take them sequentially. You can't do that in ordinary photography because things move about. But the stars and galaxies stay where they are, and the telescope can track them in, in good detail, so it's easy enough to make red, green, and blue, or whatever, color separations to make a color picture. And that's still the way it's done today, except the detectors now are electronic, not photographic. And they're about 100 times more sensitive than were the um, original photographic plates. Oh, right. So the exposure times are much shorter, a few minutes, not 90 minutes for each, each color or each, each exposure. Uh, it's called the detective quantum efficiency is around 80%. In a photographic plate, it's about 5% if you get a good plate. So that's the obvious difference. And, of course, uh, the, the detection is digital, not analogue, so immediately you have numbers to play with, which are perfect for computers. So the CCD, the charge-coupled device, the electronic device, talks to a computer. The computer knows what it's, what it's talking about, combines the images for you. It's all done in a, in a, in a hot box in a, in a computer, where it used to be a stuffy dark room at one time. So with observatories, like Siding Springs... What role do they play? I mean, we have the Hubble telescope, mm. luckily, because the, the imagery is, is obviously fascinating and you can access all that quite easily. What, how, what, what use do the observatories still have in, in astrophotography? Imaging from the ground um, is still done by professional observatories, but amateur astronomers, using rather simple equipment on a tripod, can take images that are as good as mine can now take images that were as good as mine 30 years ago. Wow. Uh, it's very impressive what, tele what technology has done. But that's also applied to uh, professional uh, observatories. Uh, the quality of the uh, data now, just think about it, data rather than images, has increased dramatically since the digital age. But the breakthrough was the Hubble Space Telescope, which is still up there, as you say, doing its thing. It's a relatively small telescope, only two metres or so in diameter of the mirror. Uh, but uh, it revolutionised the way astronomy was done again in just the same way that uh, astronomy was revolutionised when electronic detectors were used. Um, and since then, more, more specialised telescopes have gone up that are sensitive to infrared light or ultraviolet or even X-rays. All of it is in space because none of that reaches the ground. So, so the space is the only place you can, you can do it. But being in space, the telescopes are re relatively small in, in terms of collection area because they're, they're heavy. Uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, I think, has a mirror of 2.4 metres in diameter, which is pretty big. Hmm. But even so, it's small by my modern standards on the ground, where six-metre telescopes are now well-known on the ground. 
they're just light buckets. They can collect lots of light, but it's travelled through the atmosphere, and the atmosphere trembles. Yeah. So the, the image is always slightly blurred on, on the ground. In space, you're above the atmosphere, there's no blurring, and that's magical. All the, en- all the energy from the stars goes into one pixel or one or two pixels instead of being scattered about by the turbulent atmosphere. It makes a big difference. In 1986, you discovered what is known to be the largest spiral galaxy so far discovered, Malin 1, named after you, um, <laughs> which is an amazing thing to have to you. There. Yes, it and is. Something to be incredibly proud of, obviously. How did you come across it in the first place? I discovered it on a photographic plate. The, on the, on the uh, a telescope associated with the AAT, it's called the UK Schmidt Telescope. It was open before, uh, before the AAT, it was a year or so before. It's a smaller telescope, but it has a much faster optical system. F, it works at F2 or instead of uh, AAT's F4. That's all photography technical stuff. But it's a faster telescope and collect photons quick, more quickly. It has very large glass plates, uh, 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 355 millimeter square. They're pretty hefty, millimeter thick, very delicate things to deal with. Uh, but it can sit and look at the sky for a long time, and that light was integrated onto the photographic plate. And then I invented a way of copying plates in such a way that the image information near the surface of the emulsion uh, was recorded preferentially to anything else. And that's where all the faint detail is. You, you lose all the bright detail, everything's black on the plate that's bright, but the faint stuff is grey and it's got all the detail you need to know to discover faint things. So I made a, a bit of a hobby of discovering faint galaxies at that time. Low surface brightness galaxies, they're called. This one was different. Low surface brightness galaxies are usually fuzzy things like uh, fuzzballs, just okay. faint, faint structureless blobs. This one had just a trace of a spiral in it. I could see, uh, I looked up the image of it. You can see that spiral, yeah, yeah. very faint. Like you can really. And I was working with some colleagues in the United States who were working on uh, low surface brightness galaxies, the fuzzballs I was mentioning. They wanted to make a catalogue of them in the, in the Virgo cluster, which is the biggest nearby cluster of galaxies, galaxies of all kinds in there, and they wanted to make a complete census of, of, of the faint end of things. And the UK Schmidt was ideal for this, because even though Virgo is in the northern sky, you can see there, you can get that, that far north. And so that, I was making a, a help, help with these guys by enhancing these photographic plates, discovering faint galaxies that had never been seen before. And this one looked odd to me, because uh, it had this very slight trace of structure. So I put a big uh, exclamation mark on, the, on my copy photograph and sent it off to them. And the next thing I knew, we had a paper. Uh, they didn't consult me about writing the paper. I was a bit miffed by that. But anyway, they, they, they called it Mail-in-1. And so I was, I was thrilled to bits about that. But I think they did that to encourage me to find some more. Because only three galaxies of that type have been discovered since. That was in the 19, 1982 or something like that, I think, a long time ago. Yeah. So they're rare galaxies. I just stumbled across it, as you do. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Your passion for photography is something you, you want to share and you want to encourage other uh, photographers to, to keep, keep, uh, keep doing what you love. Uh, and that's why you started the David Mellon Award. Yes. You're still completely involved in this contest. Yes. Um, how much joy do you get out of the award seeing so many other people out there share your passion? I'm thrilled by what I do for the David Mellon Awards. We get um, three to 500 entries a year. Wow. And I sort through them. And every year, and it's been going now for a long time, nearly 20 years, I think, um, every time I look through them, 
they're better than last year's. People are learning more and more about how to process their photographs. They're learning more and more about the sky. They're learning more about the aesthetics because in, for this, in this context, aesthetics are important. I was just about to say, what aspects are you looking for? Yeah. In, well, in first, pictures? when I get these 500 images or whatever they are, some large number, and I look through them quite quickly, uh, and, and uh, I just re respond to the ones that catch my eye for one reason or another, either because they're unusual or the colours are interesting or the, um, uh, the format in which it's organised is interesting. In other words, my first glance is aesthetics. It's not the last glance, but the first glance. So that gives me a, f a pile of photographs or a, a group of photographs, perhaps 10% of them, uh, which are really well worth looking for again. And then I'll go through the others to see if they are uh, uh, gr groundbreaking in, in some way. Uh, they've shown something that's either difficult to see or not been done before or unique in some way. So it's got some scientific relevance as well. So then I combine these two and it's from that smaller cohort that I'm, I'd start, start judging more, more carefully. The, these uh, photographs come in five categories as deep sky and uh, a solar system and just, just categories of that kind or uh, wide angle la nighttime landscapes, that sort of thing where, where you've got some foreground and beautiful ordinary yeah. camera on a tripod in the garden, interesting foreground, some stars in the background. You can make beautiful pictures that way. So those are a category as well. So I'll go through them all and then we go to parks and I announce them and... Um, People are thrilled by it, and me too. I really enjoy doing it. David, when we think of our night sky um, and space in general, you know, we think of infinite space and vastness, and those stars fuel many people's dreams for centuries. What are your thoughts on programs like Starlink by billionaire Elon Musk's company, mm. um, Elon Musk's company SpaceX, to provide global internet access by shooting up, I think it's, he's talking about 10,000 satellites over the next years. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, that could completely change our night sky. Yes, it could. Uh, I have uh, mixed thoughts on it. Um, to me, uh, whenever I go out at night and it's dark, I'm inspired by the sky. I just love being underneath the stars, wondering about them. And I think that is very deep in our psyche. I think, I think human beings have been wondering about the mysteries of the universe for thousands and thousands of generations. It's what's made us human. It's made us think outside the box. So I think the sky has been a terrific uh, inspiration for our, to our species on a fundamental level. These things are, are only just visible, these uh, microsatellites that are up there. But there's many, many more going to be up there. So even with more modest telescopes, people's views of the universe are going to be changed, at least for several hours of the night. And I think it's very disappointing. It's mixed because these microsatellites have a, a very good purpose. It's not as though they're just put there for, for decoration. They're, they have a really yeah. good purpose. But it will interfere with the astronomy, professional and amateur, on the ground. Uh, as the density of these things increases. Happily, they're not there all night. They're at an altitude of just above, I think, 200 kilometres or so. So for part of the night, they're in the Earth's shadow. So they, they will have no significant effect. So there will be times where it's still possible to still possible. Have, yes. have a full but at other, view. At other times, on your long exposure photographs, you're going to get long streaks. 
which will um, destroy the aesthetics completely unless you can use them in some fancy way. I was just about to say, and I mean, he's just one billionaire who has this plan. Jeff Bezos, the Amazon founder, he's talking about 20,000 satellites and, you know, yeah. like it becomes yeah. this... It's a huge this, number. ...this race to, to, to yes. space. Um, when I'm watching the stars and then you see, sometimes you see a plane or you think, oh, that's a shooting star. Oh, that's just a satellite or, you know, there's some, something. It's just, um, I don't know. It's a little bit dis disappointing in a way. Like, you don't want that. You want the clear... The untouched sky. You know, well, clear, sky. untouched sky is an interesting concept because for almost all of the United States, there's light pollution somewhere True. because there's, there are big cities. Uh, the light travels up into uh, 80 kilometers high and gets reflected back in places that are not dark at all because that path length is, is quite long. So there are dark places in the US, but they're not common. Most people live in brightly lit cities, so they're not used to seeing the sky. In Australia, it's different. You get 20 or 40, 50 kilometers outside Sydney, you get some absolutely stunning dark skies. We're very fortunate, yeah. This is, which is why the, the Anglo-Australian telescope is where it is, 400 kilometers from Sydney. Even from there, you can see a glow on the horizon where Sydney is, uh, at night with your unaided yeah. eye, and a little bit to the north you can see where the coal mines are, much more diffuse but uh, quite extensive light, and you can see all little towns around. But the light isn't bright enough to affect what happens overhead. That's why the place is dark. And that's not true in the United States, for almost all of the United States. So these guys have not thought about it. They've not been exposed... I suspect they've not been exposed to dark skies. Or they've not been affected by the brilliance and wonder of the night sky. Yeah, which is why things like uh, night sky expeditions are a great way to inspire yeah. people to to cherish yes. the, the night skies. And, and, go, on, go on some, uh, a, night, a night sky safari somewhere, and you'll, uh, you'll, uh, whether you're American or Australian, in the outback, in the outback of this, this country, you'll see some lovely things, things that you never saw before. I bet you do. David, is it fair to say... Nowadays, a career like yours is almost impossible to have because, I mean, you, you followed your passion. You started somewhere and ended up somewhere completely different. Is it fair to say that there was also due to the times that you transitioned into your career? Oh, certainly. Yes, certainly. Uh, when you go to a job now, uh, there's a, a, a committee that meets you or somebody who has set, set ideas about precisely what they want for the job. And so they get that person. You uh, talked about the glass ceiling or that ceiling that you hit with the PhD yes, that you yes. needed, didn't, didn't, you know, which, which made you furious at the time, understandably so. That ceiling seems to be everywhere these days. Well, it does, but I have two doctorates now, so that, that isn't, a, isn't a problem. On the other hand, I've stopped working, so... <laughs> I, was, I, was very, I got an uh, uh, honorary doctorate from Sydney Uni and, and uh, RMIT, uh, so I'm very proud of that. I bet you are. And my grandparents uh, were alive before when I got it, and they were thrilled to bits. Well, thank you very much for taking the time and talking all about your life and about astrophotography with me. Well, thank you very much. It was a, it was a pleasure. That's it for today's episode of Talking Australia with David Mallon. If you have questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.